invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning uh, first to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 is where we'll start. You may want to flip a few pages toward the back of your Bible and uh, also stick a finger or a thumb or a bookmark in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 12 through 22 as well this morning. We are moving through this uh, sermon series called Assembly Required, which is uh, about how God puts together his family of faith and how he calls the the different members of that family of faith to relate to each other as a congregation, as pastors, as deacons, and everybody to one another. And today, I've skipped ahead. Here's, here's a funny thing. So today, my, uh, the slides that I have are a little bit more complex. So I have taken control of the slides from my phone. Oh, the wonders of technology. If things get really crazy, it's my fault, okay? So cast all your strange glances this way. find my place in my head again, where uh, today we, we are looking specifically, well, I should say more generally, not specifically, at the relationships that different people have within the family of God, how the, the members of the household of faith relate to each other. This morning, we're going to take a, a, a kind of a 30,000 foot look at uh, a form of church governance, and church governance is just a way that, that, that a church relates to one another, makes decisions, and, and does life together, called elder-led congregationalism. And I want to kind of sketch out what this looks like and, uh, and see how it is there for us in Scripture, how Scripture actually leads us toward this conviction. Now, one of uh, the, the things that I have come to love doing with my wife, I hated it at first, uh, but, but I've come to love doing it now, is to go to Ikea. Now, we don't have an Ikea in New Mexico. It's the shame of all shames. I, I can't think of a thing uh, more terrible. But if you've ever been to an Ikea, you know that it is a Swedish furniture wonderland. When you walk into an Ikea, you go up an escalator and you go into the showroom. And the showroom has all these different rooms set up, uh, bedrooms, model kitchens, living rooms, even bathrooms. And, and they have set all of these rooms up with all of their furnishings and appliances and other things so that you can kind of get a big picture view of what all of their stuff looks like in place, how it kind of functions and maybe an ideal setting for it and you can let your imagination run. Now, I used to hate going because when we went to the store, when we went to Ikea, Nikki would often say, oh, I really like that. Oh, I really like that. I really like this. And every time that she would say, I like this, I like this, I was hearing, I want to buy that. Let's buy that. Let's go get that. And I just heard dollar signs. And I had to finally get to the point where I heard what my wife was saying and not what she wasn't saying. What she was saying was, I like that, not I want to buy it and I want all these things in my home. So once I made that switch in my head, I loved going to Ikea. Because after you look at the showroom and you see all the big picture of stuff, then you go to the food court, you get you some Swedish meatballs and some soft serve, and then you go downstairs to the warehouse. And in the warehouse, there are all these bins and shelves, and it, it looks like Costco, but kind of crazier. And, and you find the, the place where the furniture that you liked in the showroom was. You go to that aisle, and you pull this big flat box off of a shelf or slide it out and, and onto your kind of your little trolley that you have. You go check out, and then you go home, and you open up the box, and it's all all the parts that you got to put together, right? There's a reason that Ikea walks you through the showroom before they take you to the warehouse. 
They want you to see everything in place. They want you to get a big picture feel for what it's going to look like, how it functions, before you just go get all the parts and try to put it together. You can imagine how frustrating it would be to do the reverse and and to go into a warehouse where you have like drawer slides and drawer fronts and and dresser tops and dresser legs and table legs and things and try to put together your, your own furniture. That would be rather frustrating. You'd buy a lot of stuff, get home and find out that maybe it doesn't all fit together. So Ikea does all the hard work for you. They give you a big picture of it, and then they take you downstairs where you purchase it, and then you have the torture of putting it together yourself at home. But hey, you've already seen the big picture. My desire today in looking at Ephesians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5 is to give us a big picture, a high-level overview of how the church and how people, individuals in the church, relate to one another. Now, as we work through these two passages, Ephesians 4, verse 15 and 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 Uh, through 22, we're going to encounter this main idea, that Christ is the head and the ultimate authority of the church. The members and the leaders of the local church must then relate to one another with respect, humility, service, and love as the scriptures describe for us. We don't get to determine how we relate to each other in the church how we want to. Christ has already designed that for us. He's already commanded it to us. And so it is incumbent upon us to do that. So as we explore this idea and the big picture of elder-led congregationalism, or you can substitute the word pastor-led congregationalism, I would hope that we would come to understand the, the, the basic or broad responsibilities and relationships that we have to one another within the church, in the household of God, so that we can then better minister to and alongside one another and grow in grace in all that we do together. So having said that, I invite you to stand with me as you're comfortably able as we read uh, Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. There the apostle says to the church at Ephesus, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The first point that we come to this morning is this, that Jesus Christ is the head and ultimate authority over the church. Jesus is the head and ultimate authority over the church. Paul says we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And this is not the only time that Paul has referred to Jesus as the head specifically over the church. He does it in other places of Ephesians. If you have time this week, go do a little word study of that word head and find the places where it's in there in connection with Jesus. As head of the church, this means that Jesus has preeminent status in the church. Jesus is supreme in the church. Jesus has all authority to command the church to obey whatever his will and desire is for the church. As the head, he's also what assembles the body in his name. He is what assembles the body for his purposes. Jesus is the grand coordinator and grand designer of the church. Everything is put together under his leadership. More than that, he's not just the assembler of the church, the designer of the church, but he's also what causes the church to hold together. He's the organizing principle of the church. He's the glue of the church. All of the members of the church of Jesus Christ have their first and most important relationship to him. 
but many other relationships also to each other as designated by Christ. There's, there's no, it's no accident that the church is often referred to as the body of Christ. There are many members that are different from each other. Christ is at the head, and we're all connected ultimately to him, but we're also connected to and have relation to one another as well. Here's this truth, that there is no relationship to the church of Jesus Christ that does not flow from and is not in subordination to Jesus. He's over it all. He rules over all of it. Uh, There's no relation that you have, church member, to another member of our church apart from, or or that supersedes, I should say, your relationship to Christ. Our relationships to one another are superseded, uh, uh, superintended, overseen by Jesus. Now, as we think about how we organize as a church and where directions come from and that sort of thing, uh, I realize some of you may be like org chart people. Those of you that may have worked in corporate settings, you want to know who's at the top, who's in charge, which direction does authority flow. And so in the life of the church, I would create an org chart, something like this. Jesus is king over all of it. Authority flows one direction, from Jesus to the church. Now you'll notice that within the church, and I put local church there in parentheses, because the church of Jesus Christ is universal. It it encompasses the globe of all people that are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. But that global church, that universal church, is made visible in the local church. So we're a, a visible manifestation of the global body of Jesus. Within the local church are two other groups of, of leaders. You have on the one hand, pastor elders that we'll talk about a little bit in a moment and more specifically next week. And on the other hand, deacons who are servants in the church. But pastors and elders, deacons, do not sit above the local church in terms of authority. They are members of the church as well. And all of us together are subject to Jesus, who is king and head of the church. Paul says, we are to grow up in every way who is, into him who is the head, into Christ. So Christ being the head of the church, dear friend, I want to ask you this question. Is Jesus Christ your head? Now, you know, I don't mean your literal head. Is he your authority? Is he your king? Is he Lord of your life? Have you submitted your life to his lordship? That is the most critical question this morning. Not whether or not you're a member of a local church. Not whether or not you're, you're in attendance in, in a church or you're part of a Bible study, but is Christ your head? Is Christ your king? Have you given all of yourself over to his rule and reign? If you're not in submission to Christ as king, who is the son of God, who died on the cross for your sins, who raised his life from the grave in victory over sin and death, if Christ is not your king, if you're not submission, in submission to his kingship, you are in opposition to him as king. If you're not under him as head, you are not part of his church, part of his body. All other self-applied labels aside, you can call yourself Christian. You might even be a member of a church. But if Christ is not your head, you are not really a part of his body. Understand that the way into the body of Christ is not through the church role. The way into the kingdom of Christ is not through self-congratulation. The way into the kingdom is through repentance. Self-denial, humility before the only king of kings. And the way into the body is by the coordination and cohesive power of its head. The way into the body of Christ is through faith in Jesus. The, The way into life with Christ is through faith in him. Friend, is Christ your king? Is Christ your head? Have you been forgiven of your sins by faith in him? Do you have the confidence of eternal life because of the relationship that you have with Jesus? If not, make that certain in your heart and life today. 
Make that certain in your heart and life today. If you hear nothing else I say this morning, focus in on your relationship with Jesus. Is he your head? Is he your king? Is your whole life coordinated and subordinated to him? But what about the congregation? It's important to know that Jesus is the head of the church. But how, within the church, does the congregation relate to each other? Who are they and what are they to do? If you have your Bibles uh, there and handy, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. Now, I have to say we're not going to have a whole lot of time to get into a lot of the nitty-gritty and the weeds of much of what we're going to talk about. This is big picture stuff. And so as I said before, write down your questions that you have about these things and send them to me. Know that we'll have a discussion session uh, on uh, January 31st here in a couple weeks to talk more about this and engage and dialogue more about this, which I look forward to doing. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 22, Paul says this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Here in these verses, Paul is addressing the congregation, the body of Christ at Thessalonica, city uh, in, in, uh, within the Roman Empire some 2,000 years ago. And there he's giving all of these different directions to them. So what is the congregation to do? Now, I'm going to uh, point out two different things that come to us from Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm doing these things in order of appearance, not in order of importance, okay? So within the congregation, the first thing that the congregation are called to do is to call to, uh, they are called to submit to their leaders, to respect their leaders. Paul says, we ask you, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, those two words, submission and respect, are taken in two very different ways in our, our current context. Respect is not a problem. We don't have a problem with the word respect. Respect is easy. We know what it is to be respected. We know what it is to give respect. We want to be respected by others, and so we seek to respect other people uh, uh, prior to maybe even being respected by them. Submission, though, is a totally different word. Uh, It's taken in a very different way, at least in our current context. Submission in a 21st century Western American sort of context is often seen as subordination. Submission means inferiority. To be submissive to somebody else means to be a doormat for their purposes and and their desires. But listen, Scripture in a biblical sense does not mean subordination. It does not mean inferiority. Rather, submission in a biblical sense means giving willing permission to be guided, to be led, to be counseled. So when Paul says to the church to submit to their leaders, as he does in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17... Where there he says, obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls. He's not saying be a doormat. You are inferior to your pastors, to your leaders. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is give willing permission to be guided by your leaders, to be led by your leaders, to be counseled by your leaders. Listen to them. Follow their their leadership and direction. Not because they're better than you. 
but because God and you as a church have called them to do this. So let them do this. So submission, though the church is called to submit to their leaders, is not a recognition or a declaration of inferiority. It's giving willing permission to be guided, to be led, to be counseled. Now, at the same time, even though the church, the congregation, are called to submit to and respect their leaders, we also affirm that the congregation, the whole body, the assembly together, as we saw last week, is the final court of appeal for matters related to doctrine, to uh, to sound doctrine, to disputes, to divisions in the body. Those things need to be taken to the church and dealt with as, as an assembly altogether. The church holds the final authority on, on these sorts of matters. At the same time, they should follow their leaders. But with the knowledge that as a congregation, the, the assembly, the members of the local church are responsible to Jesus as king for who they call to lead them and for how they follow their leaders, and for what decision-making authority they delegate to their pastors. So the congregation we see first from 1 Thessalonians 5 are called to respect their leaders. But we see second, that the congregation are responsible to grow in maturity and obedience to Christ. Now this is there for us in in much of the rest of the verses there. We see in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, Paul says, We encourage you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. He says we're responsible to exhort one another, right? To, to press one another toward, uh, toward godliness and to encourage each other in difficult times of life. As he says in verse 15, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Paul calling the church there to steward their personal relationships well. Make sure that uh, you're, you're relating to each other in a godly way. Don't return evil for evil, but do good to all. Verses 16 and 17, he tells the church, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We see in there a call to be mindful of the spiritual disciplines, to live by prayer, to live by dependence upon God and in relationship with Him. And in a similar way, to live in and live with the Spirit. He says in verse 19, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. We ought to live by the inspiration and the, uh, uh, and the instruction and the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we ought to be sensible to His leading. He says in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil, saying to the whole church, all of you must pursue personal holiness. We're to be my, uh, to, we are responsible to grow in maturity and obedience to Christ. Now here, let me see if I can sketch out these relationships for you in the church just a little bit. Within a form of congregational governance called elder-led congregation, you have, first of all, the congregation, the members of the church, those who are united together by faith in Christ, covenanted together to do ministry with one another. And Paul says, first of all, in 1 Thessalonians 5, that the congregation is to call, to respect, and to submit to pastor elders. And we'll talk more about that term pastor elders here in just a moment. That's how they relate. That's how the congregation relates to the pastors. But also within and among themselves, the congregation is responsible to encourage, confront, disciple, and serve each other. Okay? So members of the church have a responsibility to themselves, and they have a particular way that they relate to their pastors. Mindful of all of this, we'll come back to this illustration. We'll continue to build it out further in a moment. Mindful of all of this, I encourage you, church members, to be mindful of the body that you're a part of. Christ has called you and joined you together by faith in him into his body. So be mindful of the body that you belong to. Strengthen your fellow members. Work heartily exalting Christ as head together. 
This is what he's called us to do. And not as lots of so many different uh, islands within an ocean of Christianity, but as one cohesive body under him as head. Be mindful of the body that Christ has put together. Think about your members. Strengthen your fellow members. Work heartily together at exalting Christ as head of the body. Now, what about this group that we call pastors or pastor elders? Now, there are three terms in the New Testament that are used to speak of the office that we we currently understand as pastor. Those words are pastor, elder, and overseer. And those three words are used synonymously throughout the New Testament. And I'll demonstrate that for you next week. For now, I hope you'll just take me on it. But pastor elders, as I'll refer to them this way, really elders is probably the more technical term. Pastor is the term that's more familiar to us. So I'm going to use the term pastor elders. We learn from scripture that pastor elders first come from among the members of the congregation most of the time. When Paul writes to Titus, who is one of his delegates to the island of Crete, uh, to, to put things into order there in Crete, he says to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete to put everything in order that remained undone and to appoint elders for them in every town. Now, the idea there is not that Titus was bringing in outside people along with him, men that 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 he and others and maybe Paul felt should lead churches and and saying, okay, uh, this town in Crete, here's your pastor. I brought him with me. You never met him before, but here he is. You go to the next town. Here's your next pastor. Here's, you know, and that sort of, no, what he was doing was going to each town, going to the assembly of believers there, looking for men who fit a particular description and qualities given by God in his word for serving in that position and leading the congregation to recognize these men among themselves. So the Elders, the pastor elders, usually come from among the members of a congregation. They're, they're not, in the New Testament sense, these outside people, these outside experts that come in to fix a problem to lead a church from nowhere, but men that God has already gifted to the church that fit these qualifications. Now, it's true, in one sense, that even as these men come from among the congregation, they're also called by God. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28 Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself, the elders from the church in Ephesus. And there he says to them this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God that he obtained with his own blood. Now, the Holy Spirit, God has has some part in calling men to pastor the church in giving them a heart's desire, in making their lives of of such character that they can serve in this way, of of gifting them with the ability to teach his word and to divide it rightly for the church, to call them to lead and to give them a desire to spiritually lead the church. But at the same time, it is the church that affirms the call of God in the life of the individual. So God may call a man to prepare and to give his life and service and leadership for the church, But unless a church affirms God's call in the life of that man and asks that man or a group of men to lead them, he or they are not a pastor. And he has no authority other than that which the local church entrusts to him. Think about how this works. Any Tom, Dick, or Harry could come in off the street and say, my name is Pastor Tom. And and I'm Pastor Tom because God has called me to be a pastor. And I'm here to tell you that you're being unfaithful to God's word, that you need to go this way in ministry. I'm here to tell you that you need to listen to me as your pastor or as a pastor. Well, we all as a church would look at Pastor Tom and say, 
brother, I don't, God may have called you to do any sort of things, but we haven't seen you. We haven't affirmed that call in your life. You are not our pastor. You don't have authority over us because we haven't given it to you. So God calls men to pastor the church, but that call of God to pastor is always affirmed by the local church. And unless that call of God is affirmed by a local church, no man who has that call is yet a pastor. Does that make sense? See the great authority that that God has given and responsibility that God has given to the assembly to recognize these. So we know that pastors come from among the membership, but we also know that pastor elders are responsible to God for the spiritual leadership of the congregation. Again, we don't have time to get in the weeds of this. We'll look at that more next week, but this is part of what pastors do. They're responsible to God for the leadership of the congregation. As we saw in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. I'll read it again for you. The writer, the author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That's part of their job. As those who will have to give an account, an account to Christ. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pastors are responsible to God for the spiritual leadership of the congregation. And their job description is essentially four parts in Scripture. To lead, to shepherd, to pray, and to teach. Again, more on this next week, but for now, hear the words of Peter from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, as he speaks to these leaders, to these pastor elders in the church. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pastor elders come from among the congregation, They're responsible to God for the spiritual leadership, for the spiritual shepherding of the congregation. And pastor elders are responsible as members of the congregation to live holy lives. We saw the the responsibility that congregation members have to themselves to encourage, equip, serve, minister alongside one another. Pastors, as members of the congregation, have that same responsibility to live holy lives. They're not separate from, they're not different from the other members. And as such, they're called to live a similar way. So let's fill out this diagram a little bit more. The congregation encourages, confronts, disciples, serves one another. They call, they respect, they submit to their pastor elders. And pastor elders relate to the congregation by leading, shepherding, praying, and teaching them. Okay? Knowing this, and knowing that this is what God's word calls pastors to do, and church is how to relate to their leaders. I have this call first to pastors. And here I speak specifically to Pastor Danny and myself, who are two of the recognized pastors in our church, but also to any man who would feel the call of God to one day lead, shepherd, pray, teach the congregation this way. So pastors, do those things. Lead, shepherd, pray, and teach the flock that is among you as exemplary models of Christ-likeness. Do this in ways that people want to imitate, that the church would want to emulate. Lead, shepherd, pray, and teach with all the love of Christ 
for his flock among you. Do these things knowing you have to give an account to God for how you've done it. You have to answer to Jesus, who is king of the church, for how you have shepherded his flock under his care. Do not take that call lightly. Do not take that charge flippantly, but take it with all seriousness and do it with joy as God has called you. Church, pray for, serve with, and imitate the Christ-likeness of your pastors. As you call men to lead you, as you call men to, to lead, shepherd, pray for, and teach you, do this alongside them. I have no greater joy than to know that those of you that I shepherd are praying for me. No greater joy than when you as church members come to me to say, not just, Pastor, you're doing a good job or whatever, but, Pastor, how can I serve alongside you? What can I do? Here's the thought I have about ministry. How, how can we pursue that together? Know this, church members, you are not simply or merely ministry enablers. You don't just make ministry possible for the paid professionals. That was never God's intention. It's never Christ's design for the church. But rather that you be co-laborers with those who lead you. And it's my desire that we would all grow as co-laborers in Christ together. So pastors, lead the church as Christ would. Be an, an imitation-worthy example. In church, pray for your pastors. Serve alongside us. Imitate our Christ-likeness as often as we do that well and emulate it well. Knowing that we are co-laborers and not just ministry enablers. Well, there's a fourth group that we need to consider today, and that is the deacons. The word deacon means plainly in Scripture, uh, the course of Scripture, just servant. And deacons are an office, we would say, alongside or next to pastor elders that are recognized within the New Testament church. When Paul writes to the church in Philippians chapter 1, he, he greets them and he also greets the, saint, he greets the saints who are in Philippi along with the overseers and the deacons. So in recognizing the whole church, along with uh, pastor, elder, overseer, and deacons, he's recognizing that deacons, like pastors, come from among the members. They're not a separate group of people that come in from outside. They are those that have been called from among the body. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. We have this, and this we'll look at again in more detail in a couple of weeks. Has, uh, this uh, illustrates this as the church in Jerusalem is facing a difficult problem where Greek-speaking, Jewish background, believers in Jesus who were widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of bread. And the apostles, not, not wanting to, to, to turn away from the ministry of God's word and from prayer, see a real need in the church. They call the church. They say, you select from among yourselves seven men who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom who can see this task and get it done. So the church selects from among themselves these who we might would call proto-deacons. They're the, sort of the first of, a, first of a group that would fill this service within the church. They choose from among themselves these deacons. So deacons come from among the members. Second, deacons are responsible for serving the physical needs of the congregation. And this pattern is set forth for us in Acts chapter 6 again. Again, more detail here in a couple weeks on this. Where they serve a physical need, getting food to widows who are being overlooked, a physical need that otherwise, if left unmet, would have split the church in two along the lines of language and cultural background. The apostles said, this is not good for the church to split because of language and cultural background. That's ridiculous. So let's just meet the need and all move forward in unity together. Deacons meet these physical needs in the church 
not as secondary needs to the spiritual needs that the the pastor elders meet in, in the direction that they lead, but deacons serve these needs so that pastor elders can focus on serving the spiritual needs of the congregation. Focusing their their energy and focusing their gifts on giving spiritual leadership to the church. And deacons, just like pastor elders, just like the congregation, are also called and responsible to God and as members for living holy lives. Notice how that's incumbent upon all of us to walk in holiness, to walk in purity, to, to, to pursue Jesus more and more in obedience and maturing in him, regardless of what uh, of what office or responsibilities you may have in the church. You might be a six-year-old believer or a 96-year-old believer, and this call still applies to you. Live a holy life. You may be a pastor elder. You may be a deacon. You may have done it for decades. The call does not change. Continue pursuing holy lives. So let's return to the sketch that we have. We have the congregation who is responsible to themselves to encourage, confront, equip, serve one another. The congregation relates to their pastor elders as they call them to lead, as they submit to their leadership, as they give them respect and trust them. The pastor elders relate to the congregation by leading, shepherding, praying for, teaching. The congregation relates to the deacons by calling, by recognizing them, by by looking among their number to say, this person serves the physical needs in the body especially well and should be recognized as such. And the deacons relate to the body by serving them, by serving them, by meeting those needs. There's, of course, now one aspect of relationship that we don't see detailed, so I'll hit that now. How do pastor elders and deacons relate to each other? Well, according to the, the principles of the, of the rest of the relationships, pastor elders, just like they do the congregation, lead, equip, and recognize deacons. By the wisdom given to them, by God, they help the church to, to see. These are who uh, are worthy, who fit the qualifications of being a deacon, and we should recognize them. They also give leadership to the deacons. They also equip them for service. And the deacons serve the pastor, elders, by meeting those physical needs in the church so that pastor elders can focus on those spiritual things and giving spiritual leadership in the church. So if you are a deacon, ever have been a deacon, or would like or are considering being a deacon at some point, here's my encouragement to you from our text this morning. First of all, serve with gladness and humility, knowing that you serve the body and bride of Christ. Serve with gladness and humility, knowing you serve the body and bride of Christ. It is a wonderful thing to serve Jesus by serving his body. And though, deacons, you may be often overlooked, uh, often unseen, you may often work behind the scenes, know that Christ sees all that you do for his bride. And he delights in it. So serve with gladness and humility, knowing you serve the body and bride of Christ. And church, pray for your deacons. Pray for those who meet those, those outstanding physical needs in the church. Seek to serve alongside them. All of us are called to serve the body of Christ in a way similar to deacons. So serve alongside them. When you see a need, serve it. Meet it. May want to come alongside one of your deacons and to say, hey, how can I serve with you? Or perhaps you're thinking about meeting the physical needs in the church in a, in a more concerted and, and focused way. And, and perhaps God is calling you, leading you to serve as being a deacon. Look for opportunities to do that. And church, look out for those among you who exemplify this kind of Christian service. Be involved, be active in looking for those who may be considered or or publicly recognized as deacons in the church. So we have this kind of flow chart of relationships. Congregation, pastor, elders, deacons. All of it is under the headship. All of it is under the kingship, the authority of Jesus. And yet there is still leadership 
and accountability and authority within all of this system that we would call elder-led congregationalism. And having gone through all of that, I recognize that you may have many objections and questions to some of the things that we've talked about this morning. So I'd like to try to address three hypotheticals very quickly as we close. First, you may be saying, this congregational model seems rather fragile. Everything's, everything's bound together by personal relationships. If the congregation has ultimate authority in matters of who they call as pastor and that sort of thing, then a congregation can also just fire their pastor unjustly. I mean, I mean he, could, he could preach on Hebrews when you think he should preach on Chronicles, and the church could just fire him for it. That's fragile, and that's true. And we've seen and we know of churches that have unjustly treated those that they've called to lead them. We know of churches who have unjustly, unrightfully fired their pastors for, let's just say it, dumb reasons, ungodly reasons, sinful motivations. Likewise, we've also seen pastors who who do have authority given by God to lead the church. We've seen pastors abuse that authority, abuse those relationships, act as bullies, toward their congregation members. Seek to make the deacons a, a, a pack of pit bulls that go and do their, their bidding, right, during the week. We've seen these, these relationships abused on, on all fronts. This congregation model, congregational model seems fragile because it is fragile. So I'll just admit, yeah, it's fragile. Second, you might say, well, congregationalism is inefficient. If, if the congregation has to be has to be asked about major decisions, that the congregation actually has to vote on stuff, that takes a lot of time. If pastors have to talk with the congregation about a direction that they want to lead the church, rather than just leading, like, well, they'll never get anywhere very quickly, will they? On the one hand, I would want to warn us, to caution us against the idol of efficiency, against worshiping at the shrine of productivity. Scripture never says you have to churn out this many widgets to be successful in the eyes of God. So efficiency, productivity are not necessarily bad things, but they're not things that we must do as a church. By the way, when has discipleship ever been efficient? Those of you who are walking with Christ, when has it ever just been bing, bang, boom, A, B, C, I'm done, I'm there? Part of the reason that I don't advocate for a 12-month discipleship program in the church is because you can't just follow Jesus for 12 months and be a perfect disciple. It takes a whole lifetime of doing that. Congregationalism is efficient, but we should see in its inefficiency the sanctifying work of the Spirit as we press into relationships, as we pray together, as we discuss important decisions together as we submit to leadership, and as leaders submit to maybe the greater collective wisdom of the assembly. It is inefficient, but, it's, but it is efficiently sanctifying. Perhaps you may be asking, with this fragile, inefficient model of pastor-led, elder-led congregationalism, how, Stephen, in the world do you expect such a system to hold together? It's fraught with weakness. It's fraught with fragility. There's inefficiency and unproductive, uh, potential for unproductiveness all over the place. How do you expect a system like this to hold together? Because this is the economy of Christ's church. Christ is king over his church. A system of governance, which we already have by our constitution and bylaws as a church, of pastor-led, elder-led congregationalism, holds together 
First, by recognition that Christ is king and head of the church, and no man or woman therein is. Only Christ is king of the church, and we submit everything to his authority, to his word. We, we, we look at and explore every decision that we make, every direction that we go, in light of God's authoritative word. I also believe that it will hold together as we give ample trust and respect in all directions. We live in a society that says trust is earned. But in the church, trust is not first earned. Trust is first given. Congregations need to trust their pastor elders, even if they've not been pastoring very long. I speak here of myself. I've been senior pastor for three years. I I probably haven't done a whole lot to gain much trust. And yet, if trust is never given, it will be hard to ever really earn it or, or to grow it. And likewise, as, as pastors, we need to trust you as the congregation as well to assume that we're not the only ones that have answers, that we're not the only ones that, that can provide leadership, and certainly that, that we're not the only ones believing in the priesthood of all believers that hear from the Holy Spirit and are guided and led by Him. A fragile, weak system holds together when we recognize that Christ is head and we give trust and respect before it's ever earned. And third, it'll hold together through much prayer and much commitment to Christian maturity. When we take seriously the call of Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, to grow up into him who is head, as we do that in prayerfulness together, as we do that in relationship together, as we do the hard work of knowing and being known by one another and relating to each other in the way that Jesus has designed for his church to, this system will hold together. It's a weak system. It's a fragile system. But I'm reminded of what a weak and a fragile man was told by God when he asked him three times to remove his weakness. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians pleaded with God three times, take this thorn in the flesh from me. Take away this weakness from me so I can be more efficient for you in ministry. And God responded to him every single time. I'm not going to do it. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. We should glory in the weak fragile, inefficient system of church governance that God gives us in his word called elder-led congregationalism because God perfects his power in weakness. We should press into that. We should embrace it. And we should walk together as co-laborers in ministry in the relationships, the type of relationships that Jesus has designed for us in his word, seeking to walk more faithfully after him so that we can fulfill the great commission that he's given to us to do. Friend, I call you again this morning. If you've not yet made Christ your king, everything else that we've talked about this morning has no relation to you. Until you know Christ as Lord, until you've given your life to him as Savior, until you've taken the facts of his life, death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and to place you in right relationship with God, you have not yet entered into his church. So today, before you do anything else, friend, trust Christ. Give your whole life to him as king. Rest your whole life on him as Lord. Know God, your creator, through Jesus, his son. And then enter into the family of God, enter into the church, and begin relating and doing these things to and for and with one another.